TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Good morning and welcome to the Morning Briefing for Tuesday, February 6th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dane. Jake Hughes is your producer and coming up on today's show, Justin Brown of Hill Vets will be live in studio to fill us in on the latest happenings on Capitol Hill that affect us in the veteran community. Of course, Justin's a Navy vet himself, and his organization works to get more veterans involved in politics in our nation's capital, as well as ensuring that veterans' voices are heard by those who work on Capitol Hill, and that we hear about what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Later, Combat Flip Flops co-founder and CEO Griff will be on the phone to talk about that amazing company which has the stated goals of growing entrepreneurs in conflict areas, building communities, and funding women's education. Also coming up with some pretty awesome footwear ideas. All of that on today's show that starts now as we welcome Super Producer Jake Hughes into the studio. Jake, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how about you? Uh, better than yesterday. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> I had to message you at like 5 o'clock in the morning. Hey, uh, well, a little bit later than that, actually. It was 5.45, so babysitter's supposed to come. My wife was out of town, left early in the morning yesterday to go up, uh, do some work stuff in New Jersey. And the babysitter's supposed to be there uh, right around the time that I leave. She comes in, takes my son to school. Uh, she didn't show up at the time she was supposed to. I start calling. 15 minutes later, I get a text message saying, uh, it's icy and I slipped on the way to my car. I'm scared. I don't think I can make it. Oh, yeah. So it was icy uh, a little bit in parking lots. Like when I dropped my son off at school, I did slip and whack my elbow pretty hard on the car door. Uh, but driving on the roads, it was fine. So, uh, you know, we were not very happy about that. It kind of kind of caused some issues yesterday, particularly here with the morning show where Jake was, uh, of course, fully able to fill in for me yesterday. And I listened and it sounded pretty good, especially that middle part. The guy who did that middle part. Oh, he's great. Yeah. He's uh, he's kind of a jerk though. Yeah, that's fine. doesn't matter as long as he's good at what he does. <laughs> of course that would, that would be me who was doing a, a replay of one of our American Legion spots. Well, our computer in here is malfunctioning now. So I wanted to talk about some stories, but it's uh well, it's going to be a little bit longer because I even tried restarting the computer and it's still not doing it. This is like being on a ship and looking at the internet and just waiting for anything to load. Thankfully, in this day and age, we all have cell phones and I've got mine in my hand. So we're able to get up there. There are a lot of interesting things going on in the military. There were interesting things going on when I was in as far as programs looking to force people out. Now, we've heard recently about uh, them looking to add extra people to the military, right, Jake? Right. We've talked about that. Well, 
New Pentagon plan could boot thousands of non-deployable troops. That's the headline from Military Times. And it says a new Defense Department policy could lead to thousands of troops being separated from the military. Uh, And the policy basically requires the service to process members who are non-deployable for 12 consecutive months for admin or disability separation. That's interesting. Very interesting. Because there can be valid reasons that aren't... uh, permanent that someone's not deployable for 12 months you know you could have like a serious injury that keeps you not deployable for a year and then be fine after that Uh, according to this defense department policy though you'd have to be processed for admin or disability separation yeah you can see the logic here because if a soldier can't deploy then you know he can't fight the battles and whatnot but like you said there's always extenuating circumstances yes there are people who have are no longer able to deploy, and I don't know what their fate should be. I can't speak on that. But there are people who are just having temporary setbacks. So it strikes me as a little premature. Yeah, it's interesting. And and oftentimes when the military decides to do this, uh, you talk about the extenuating circumstances. When they put policies in, they don't take that into account. When it comes into actually putting it into motion. And also, I mean, the, the program that I was forced out under is a great example of the military not doing things the right way. And that was something that the Navy called perform to serve. So to give a brief breakdown of it, not to get too into the weeds on the issue, it was originally a program for first term sailors. So E1 through E3, basically, if you didn't make petty officer third class in your four or five year enlistment, whatever it was, uh, you were reviewed under this program and it looked at your evals and said like, well, this is a, a seaman who should be doing very well and they're getting 3.0 evals instead of a 5.0 or a 4.0 and you'd be forced out based on, they'd come up with a cutoff basically and then you'd be forced out under that. Well, then uh, the DOD told the Navy, well, you're going to need to cut like 60,000 people across all ranks. They expanded that program up through E6, started looking at people and you got looked at nine months out from your EAOS. Well, here's the problem, because it's not calendar year and they were doing it nine months from your EAOS and it's fiscal year. For someone like me, when they went to go look at me, they'd already given out all the spots in my job for my rank. So there was zero chance that I would be kept in. And it doesn't take into account that let's say they had 30 people that they kept in out of uh, 100 If you only looked at people for those two months and 60 of the other 70 were never eligible to even be looked at, how do you know you're keeping the right people in? You don't, but that's what the policy was, and that's how it works in the military specifically and in government generally. There is very little wiggle room, and you don't have the ability to, well, say maybe we shouldn't do this this way because we might be forcing out a lot of very good uh, people who we'd prefer to keep in. Using someone else as an example who I knew uh, who got out at the same time as me under the same program, he was the sailor of the year at my command. Number one sailor at a command of a thousand forced out of the military because there wasn't enough room for him. Now, they kept in other people in his rate on that ship who were not sailors of the <laughs> year. Tell me how that makes any sense. Well, it doesn't. And that's the problem with military policy sometimes is that it's all black and white. And the, the army pr- or the military prides itself on being rigid with standards. But they have to, at some point, recognize that there are shades of gray in this world and that some people just have, like I said, extenuating circumstances. 
Yeah, but again, with with military policies, they often are not allowed to take those into account. I mean, I, you know, my command, uh, some of them were like, "Well, this is this isn't right for a bunch of us that we're getting out, but there's nothing that we could do about it." You know, when you talk about shades of gray, here's a story where I'm seeing lots of shades of all sorts of things. And that is one that is headlining ConnectingVets.com right now. And it's about that Afghanistan veteran, Miguel Perez Jr., 39 years old, was living in Chicago, faces deportation to the country that he does not call home, Mexico place where he hasn't lived since he was seven or eight years old. Uh, of course, two deployments to Afghanistan. And what I'm seeing in a lot of the stories, including the one that I see on our site, veteran diagnosed with post-traumatic stress who served two tours in Afghanistan, uh, is finding out his service may not be enough to stay in the United States. This is a story written by our own Matt Sainsing. Um, 2010 drug conviction. Uh, he lost an appeal that would have kept him in the United States, is now in a detention center in, Was- detention center in Wisconsin, awaiting possible deportation to Mexico. Uh, here's the thing, felony drug conviction. And what I've seen in some stories, uh, not not ours in particular, was that he was saying, oh, you know, he, he was using cocaine to combat the PTS that he had. What? I don't I don't recall seeing any studies like marijuana. I've seen some studies about that being helpful. Cocaine. I don't know about that. Also, if that's all that he was doing involved with drugs, why did he give a briefcase full of cocaine to an undercover officer? Well, that's what drug, he did. Yeah, it was a drug dealer. I've seen stories and, and I you know what? I have to find the actual ones, but I've seen I've read things about this guy having like two pounds of cocaine with him and this not being the first time that he was involved with the drug trade. So this is like, okay, he served in the military. Okay. He did his time. Yep. He served half of a 15 year sentence. So think about that 15 years. That's a pretty heavy sentence for drugs. He had a lot of drugs with him and he was selling them, not using them, selling them to an undercover officer. Um, it's, it's very, uh, it's very interesting to see uh, the the arguments on this. Well, he served in the military. Yeah, okay. And he committed a crime. And while he served in the military and got out, you know, this is a guy who did not, as, as far as I've read anywhere, maybe he did and I just haven't seen it, did not work towards his citizenship. If he were a citizen, if he got that citizenship and then got arrested, guess what? Not going to be deported to Mexico. It seems very cut and dry to me, but there are a lot of people who are seeing shades of gray. Well, he served in the military. I look at that and I go, and he's a, he's a drug felon who's not a U.S. citizen. You get deported. Yeah. doesn't matter what job you did while you were here. You could have been doing any number of wonderful jobs while you were here. You did. You committed a felony. You get deported. That's, that's what happens. Yeah, no one forced him to sell cocaine to an undercover officer. And it, this is one of those scenarios where I really wish I could see the shades of gray because I always I always err on the side of caution. That's just the kind of person I am. But like you said, this is cut and dry. He did a felony drug charge. He's been in the country since he was seven or eight years old, he said. Yeah, like and he's 39, so that's uh, 30 years. And in that time, he never once fill that paperwork to become a citizen, even though I know for a fact that when you first come in the military, one of the first things they do at reception is tell you your path to citizenship, tell you what you need to do. Right. So if he knew what to do and didn't do it, well then, sorry, buddy, the ship has sailed. You had your chance. You had every opportunity to seek citizenship and avoid deportation. But now it's too late. 
You know, and one of the interesting things that I've heard on this debate, because we, we've heard about various people being deported who are veterans and and people talking about how that should allow them to stay in the U.S., uh, the crimes that they commit are often glossed over. Yeah. In some cases, they are fairly minor crimes. They are. There's the guy in the Pacific Northwest who was a drug addict. He wasn't selling drugs. The crime he committed was like vandalism. He was breaking light bulbs or something on the back of a construction store through like a... a like a mini Molotov cocktail against a cement wall someplace, things like that. Okay, this guy wasn't committing felonies. This was just uh, someone who had clearly some severe uh, issues, some some mental health issues, uh, some drug addiction issues. Uh, that one, okay, those crimes, that's one thing. But felonies with m- trying to sell drugs, a briefcase of cocaine, and then hearing, uh, and not, not in our story, but I saw in uh, another story that – you know, they were saying the cocaine thing, like he was using cocaine because he was diagnosed with PTSD. What? No, that's not like, that's not a, that's not a valid reason for him to, for you to excuse his selling cocaine because yeah. that's what he did. Yeah. Plus the last time I checked taking stimulants wasn't the best way to calm down from PTSD. Yeah. Well, that's what you would say. Now, following his service in the army, Perez sought treatment at a VA hospital in Maywood, Illinois, where he was diagnosed with PTSD. He was supposed to be tested for a traumatic brain injury, but he was arrested before it could take place. So it seems that that what's being hinted at there, although we don't have a I don't have a full timeline in this story uh, that it's being hinted at that, like, you know, the traumatic brain injury maybe caused him to sell the cocaine, something like that. I mean, because we don't have a timeline and it says that he was being tested for it, but uh, he was arrested before that could take place. Well, when did he get out of the military? That's that's. That's my question. 2008, so we're talking 10 years ago. He was 29 at that time. How long did he serve in the military? Uh, two tours in Afghanistan. doesn't really say. Um, you know, I, I, I want to see the timeline there. I really do. Because I wonder, you know, 2008, seven years after uh, September 11th. So, that, I mean, started people started doing tours in Afghanistan 2000, late 2001, early 2002. I, I want to see the timeline on that, how long it was after. But anyway, I... There are a lot of people with TBI. There are a lot of people with PTS who don't commit felonies. So, you know, it's 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 a story. It's a sad story, certainly. And I wish this guy had uh, had gotten uh, the help that he needed and everything. But he committed a crime. He committed a felony, man. This was a large amount of cocaine given to an undercover agent. And again, I've seen unvalidated uh, stories because I don't have them right in front of me right now. But where this was not the first incident that he had. This was just the big one where he got caught and it was basically a sting trying to find him selling drugs. And he did. So uh, it's very, uh, uh, it's a very interesting, interesting story, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I, what, what do you want the government to do? Well, yeah, he committed a felony and yes, he's not here uh, as a citizen, but we're just going to let him stay in the country. No, yeah, that's not the way that it works. It's very similar to the military and the government. As we said, there are no shades of gray. And in this case, there aren't. So I, you know, it would be nice if uh, if he had been able to uh, figure out a way to not commit crimes and, and stay here. Uh, is the TBI? I mean, you'd have to have experts come in and testify that it was specifically because of a traumatic brain injury that he ended up doing what he did in selling cocaine. That's a hard sell. Yeah. You're, you're, I mean, I'm sure you could find somebody to say that, but how legit is that going to be? Um, it's, it's a fascinating story, but I did notice that earlier last year when we, uh, were seeing stories, uh, I think there was one in like, um, 
was it the LA Times, I think, that story where they were talking about a protest in Mexico by veterans who had been deported. And it just said that they'd been deported and didn't give the reason for any of them. And then you look into it and you're like, oh, these are felons. These are convicted felons who were deported from the United States. I mean, it, and it may sound harsh. It may sound cold, but don't commit crimes. I don't have any felonies on my record. Do you? Nope. There you go. And we're citizens of this country. <laughs> so if we did, when we got out of jail, we would not be deported. I mean, and as you said, uh, the other issue that I hear people bring up is, well, you know, the, the military doesn't make it clear that you can get your citizenship. And blah, yes, blah, blah, blah. they do. No, I know that they do because I know several people who are able to go through and get their citizenship while serving in the military. In my boot camp division, we had, I think we started off with like 117 or something like that. And I want to say about 12 or so were from other countries. And they were already starting to work on that stuff before they got to boot camp. And then afterwards, they knew exactly what they needed to do. We had a guy from Nigeria. We had one from Brazil. We had one from, uh, well, we had one from Cambodia, but he ended up being uh, kicked out of the boot camp division because it turned out he was a veteran himself of the Khmer Rouge, the ah. violent, uh, I don't even, what do you, I guess you'd call it a dictatorship, but the uh, essentially the regime in Cambodia that was responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. Uh, apparently, they finally had an expert look at some of the tattoos that he had. He had a... Uh, a lot of tattoos on him, and they had someone who was an expert in Cambodia look at those tattoos, from what I understand, and found like, oh, yeah, no, this guy was uh, an active member of the Khmer Rouge's military, so he was gone. But we had, you know, around, it was over 10 uh, folks from other countries, and each and every one of them was well aware of the path to citizenship through there, and you said, as a drill sergeant, I'm sure you had to deal with that too, with with you know them seeing them being let known like, hey, this is how you go about doing it. Yeah, right? I was, I was, I say privileged to stand and hold the flag for a uh, citizenship ceremony for a uh, soldier from Uganda, hmm. and I I felt honored that I was able to participate in that because we told them as soon as they come in, hey. This is what you need to do. This is the paperwork you need to fill out. It's not an immediate process, but this is how you get your citizenship. So, I mean, I, mean, I don't know how they did it back in 2000. Well, that's whenever this guy joined, but I yeah. would assume that if they told me to do it, drill sergeant school hasn't changed that much. It doesn't change that much over the years, and this is something that's always been. I mean, there were spots on AFN about it. I remember the AFN spot with the British guy at a barbecue talking about how he had gone through and gotten his citizenship after joining the military from England. And, you know, it was it's not something that they hide from people. It's not like they're trying to trick people like, oh, yeah, come on in and then we'll uh, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll tell you eventually. And then they never tell them. No, they tell them they tell them what to do. It's part of the process. Um, again, we don't know the uh, we don't know the whole story of the Mr. Perez, but. What we do know is that he committed a felony, man, and that's not okay. And when you're not a citizen of the United States, no matter what job you did, no matter what, you could be a fantastic doctor or something like that. And then if you commit a felony, guess what? You're you, gone. You're a felon. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's how it works. I don't, I don't understand the confusion on this, but uh, it's one of those things... Uh, the timeline would be helpful, and I haven't seen it in many stories. And when I don't see something in a story that would be very helpful in letting you come to uh, a conclusion, that really makes me wonder uh, why that's not in there. You know, why, you know, if the New York Times is reporting on this story, if Military Times is, is reporting on this story, where is 
the information that could let me go, oh, okay. So he had six years in between that felony and when he got out of the military and didn't try to uh, get his citizenship then. I mean, it's it's all very, it's interesting stuff, man. It's really interesting stuff um, to see the way things are presented. And again, with the original story, which I, I want to say it was the LA times, the one on the, uh, but there it was covered by a bunch of media outlets, but I think the original one was the LA times on the protests in Mexico from deported veterans. And there was very little mention of, of why they were deported. And then you find out this one guy, Oh yeah, he worked for one of the drug cartels and he was a smuggler bringing stuff in and out of the States using his Mexican citizenship. <laughs> right? I mean, if he'd gotten his American citizenship, it probably would have been a little bit easier for him to smuggle stuff in and out of the States. Um, either way, uh, it's just very, uh, it's a very upsetting story. Certainly you don't like to see uh, anybody who served in the military deported, but man, there's certain rules, you know, yeah. it's like, Hey, when you see someone who served in the military and served honorably and did great things and then commit some other crime, I, that, Crime is not validated by the fact that they served in the military. It's not excused by the fact that they served in the military. So I kind of look at that the same way with this one. And and also, again, the more you look into it, the more you find like, oh, this wasn't just like some guy buying a little baggie of cocaine on the street corner. This was a guy trying to sell a briefcase full of cocaine to yeah. somebody. That's that's slightly different. You know, it's uh, it's a little bit of a different animal. Speaking of animals. Those fighters in the UFC, man, they are savages. They go in there, they beat each other up, they win, they lose. We've had a couple of uh, former UFC fighters as guests on the show. Tim Kennedy, Brian Stan, uh, Bellator fighter Shane Crutchton, of course. MMA is big in the veteran community, and there are a number of veterans who compete, one of which fought actually this past weekend, Tim Johnson. Now, he served in the Minnesota National Guard. He was a sergeant there, went down to Brazil fighting in the UFC and fought an unbeaten heavyweight prospect on that prospect's home turf down in Brazil. He won Tim Johnson by a unanimous decision. He's now 12 and four. He's got uh, a big big mustache that's what he's got he's got yeah. like the lifer mustache uh, but it yeah. looks like it's grown a little bit too much he looks very old timey he looks like i don't know if you saw a movie about like gangsters in the 1800s and they were like hey big tough jim is over here that's the guy who would be their bodyguard ah, with one got of, it one of those styles of mustaches but congratulations to our fellow veteran tim johnson for his win over marcelo golm it was on fox sports one on the main card it's now 12 and four overall four and three in the ufc and uh I, I like seeing veterans succeed in that sport. There are a few of them that have been very well known over the years. Randy Couture, probably the best known veteran in MMA. Uh, Brian Stan, of course, as we mentioned, Tim Kennedy, Liz Carmouche, uh, Colton Smith. There are uh, a bunch of veterans who have been successful at the highest level and on several other levels in MMA, but uh, just always good to see and good to see uh, you know a guy like Tim Johnson, who from all all appearances seems to be a pretty good guy and a former guardsman from Minnesota. So good on him. Now, here's an interesting one, Jake. There's been a lot of talk about physical fitness in the military, maybe changing the physical readiness tests to directly uh, reflect on what your job is. Right. If you're an admin person, maybe you don't need to be able to run 50 miles. You know, if you're yeah. just filling that out, maybe you just need really good finger dexterity or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. So the Pentagon is trying to find ways to build a fitter force and trying to buy, f find ways to uh, build a force that also is tr tested on what they do, tested on what they train to. There's also the body fat tape test. 
Are you uh, familiar with it? Yes, I actually got taped once in the military because I weighed 185 pounds, and the the healthy weight for my height is like 160 pounds. I haven't been 160 since high school. Yeah, but I mean, like I was getting close to 300, a perfect 300 score on my PT test, and I got taped, and it felt I felt very bad about myself. Well, and there's also uh, been a bunch of issues, and I remember the fitness coordinators at every command that I was at talking about the tape test and saying, "This is we're, it's like we're using science from 150 years ago. This is not how you measure someone's uh, body mass or body fat. Measuring their neck, you measure their waist, and then you measure their neck. You subtract the neck measurement from the waist measurement. It gives you a number, and that's how you go like, oh, there. So if you had a very thick neck, essentially... Uh, you were good to go. If you had a thin neck, oh man, you were kind of screwed on that one. Well, the tape test, according to DOD, they're looking at the possibility of getting rid of that. Uh, They're still months away from final recommendations, but one of the things they're looking at is whether that tape test uh, is the best option. Uh, The answer is no. (laughs) <laughs> no, it's not. We, we know that. I know that, and I'm not really an expert. But there's a quote here in Military Times saying, the science is pretty slim for body composition testing. Uh, this is from somebody uh, who's looking into this measure. Based on the few types of methods that are accepted, how do we make sure those methods are used appropriately, included in the policy, applied across the services, and that they're doable by the services? Um it's it's clear that that doesn't work. And there are people who are top-level athletes who, if you do that measurement, it should, they would fail, basically. You would, do, you would say that professional athletes are fat. Oh, look, you're fat. You don't have the right body composition. It doesn't make any sense, any sense whatsoever. To me, I always thought if you could pass the PRT, if you could do the things that were required of the test – who cares how, yeah. what your waist measure, measurement is? doesn't really matter. But, uh, you know, if the military doesn't always agree, then again, military is not always right, as we've been talking about uh, this morning. <laughs> but, again, there are also rules, so what are you going to do? What we're going to do is talk to Justin Brown, founder and CEO of Hillvets. He's standing right outside the studio, ready to come in for his Tuesday chat. And then later on in the show, Griff from Combat Flip Flops will join us and talk to us about that wonderful company and what they're doing to help war-torn countries. It's the Morning Briefing, back after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to the Morning Briefing. It's Tuesday, February 6, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And this is the greatest veteran-focused radio show that there is. Hey, go grab uh, Jonathan, too. Bring him on. Oh, he's coming in here. Good. All right, Jake is going to join me in studio here. Uh, Our guest has yet to call in, so hopefully just a little bit of a, a minor delay. But as I was saying, the best veteran focused morning show live daily morning show i think that there is on the airwaves it also may be the only 
live veteran focused morning show on the airwaves every day but still just because it's the only one doesn't mean it's not the best one right jonathan it's logically <laughs> i think it means it's the best it one exactly it's the best one uh, further can, evidence that we are the best you can also <laughs> say that it's uh it's the worst one but i'm going to destroy you if i you mean say tomato that. tomato so yeah you know we've been looking at uh, a lot of things on connectingvets.com we've talked about a few issues today including the afghanistan veteran facing deportation and you can take a look at that one of course on the front page there uh, the vfw asking you to stop leaving remains at the vietnam wall jake wrote that story based on the conversation we had with uh, joe davis from the vfw which was based on the washington post story about this issue that's happening there and you can also find in our get help section some pretty amazing stuff to help you well get help one that i like particularly because of the visuals of it. I mean, when you see the screen cap, I had to ask the other day, is this a photo or an actual screen capture from the video? It's the Hack the VA video series featuring oh, Jonathan Copang. That guy. Who joins us right now. Now, <laughs> the first one that I'm seeing here is doctor information. So mm -hmm. when it comes to hacking the VA, I mean, what can people do to actually get the VA to work a little bit better for them other than just, you know, showing up and hoping for the best? Because as we know, that's probably not going to work out that well. Well, I think the, the main thing that people need to, like people can get from these hack the VA videos is that you're in charge of your healthcare. Um, the VA is doing things to make it easier for you to take control. Um, and that's kind of how the focus of all this. Um, the thing for the doctor's information, the VA does have, you know, um, access to care.va.gov, I believe is what the, the website is. Right. And you can see wait times for medical centers and you can find out information about doctors. You can find out all sorts of things, but it's very basic information. So what we did with that video was we found a couple other links to use that information to find out real good information about your doctors. Because the VA will only, only tell you where they work, what their specialty is, um, where they went to school, things like that. Right. So, but with some of these things, there are two other websites that we talk about in this video, and I don't remember the, the web addresses offhand, sorry. Um, but the, with the information you can get from the VA, you could find out if there's been any um, complaints about the doctor or anything filed against them, and it's very easy to find if you know what you're looking for. And so that's kind of what we're doing with these videos. Yeah, it sounds like that's the kind of the VA as a whole in that the care is very good, but it's getting to the care. So same thing with this. It's like the information's out there, but it's a little obscure getting to the actual websites. You got to kind of look a little yeah, bit. You kind of have to know. And the first one we did, we we what, it was about the, the website because the VA website is this massive labyrinth of information information. And, and I love it because I, I love to get lost in it. But if you're looking for specific information, you don't want to go there. You want to go to um, explore.va.gov, which is a, it has all the same information and you can it has links to the main site, but it's easier to find out information if you go to explore.va.gov and start there than it is to go to the main site. And really that's, that's, kind of expounds on what the issue is with the VA, which is often the bureaucracy that's yeah. going on there. Um, and as Jake said, the care is oftentimes fantastic. Sometimes it's not. We've had some horror stories coming out of, uh, you know, like a scalpel being left inside someone. That was yeah. a recent story. Uh, although the scalpel issue, I think, happened quite a while back. But the story was recent. Right. We just found out about it. Uh, one of the videos on there about doctor information, finding out info on your doctor. Mm -hmm. You want to know if it's Dr. Nick Riviera from The Simpsons who got his degree <laughs> from, like, the University of Guam. It's yeah. a wonderful Hi. place. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi, every veteran. Oh, what seems to be the problem? Oh, no. Uh, that Let's all do Dr. Nick impressions for the next <laughs> 20 minutes. Um, you know, finding out information on your doctor, finding out information on the VA, finding out about these programs, which 
they have a lot of programs, but as you were saying, can often be buried within uh, what is not always the most functional website. Yeah, and and I mean, talking about programs and and bringing up the the article that you mentioned about that Jake did about leaving the remains at the Vietnam Wall, they have a program that I didn't know was was out there. Where if let's say Eric, you had to, or you didn't, but you came across a, a veteran who was dying, the the veteran died, and you paid to have that person buried. Mm-hmm. You can go to the VA, and this was like let's say twenty years ago, you did right. this. You can go to the VA, and there's a program where you can get reimbursed for that now. Wow, really? Yeah. So there's, there's so many really interesting things. And the more I learn about the VA, the more I realize we need to keep the VA. Yeah. <laughs> it needs to be fixed. Don't get me wrong. It definitely needs to be fixed. And there are some programs going on. In fact, there's one that was just announced uh, last week about fixing the low-performing uh, medical centers. They have, mm. a, they have a new process for doing that. Um, and I think it's about time for that they do that. Um, by their own you know, score system, if you have a one-star medical center, there's something wrong. And the day that they announced this, just before that they sent out the press release about announcing this, they relieved the person who was in charge of one of those one-star uh, medical centers. And there's a story about that on ConnectingVets.com, which was just a little misleading because it says VA blowing up underperforming <laughs> medical centers with a picture of a building being imploded. I was like, oh, this is awesome. You get a one-star, guess what? We come in, we lay explosives, and we blow up the building. You get five minutes to evacuate. Yes. Well, <laughs> in, exactly. in a way, they're, they're, they're doing that because they're, yeah. they're, they're not messing around. And, and that's one of the things about Secretary Shulkin that I really, really appreciate. When he makes up his mind about something, he does it. There's no messing around. And just like, I mean, they announced this, that this program to fix these things, but a few minutes before they announced it, they relieved the first, you know, there's, I think, 15 one-star medical centers. They relieved a person in Oregon. So I don't know if they're working their way across the U.S., but um, if they do, the the D.C. medical center is a one-star, so... That should happen sometimes too. That's that's funny because if I can only speak for myself here, but I've I've received care at the Washington D.C. VA Medical Center, and I've never had a problem with it. The only problem I've ever had was extreme wait times for medication. Yeah. But now that I get my stuff through the mail, that's never a problem. So I've I've never noticed that. But now I I think a lot about the VA, and I've been lucky when it comes to care, like because I've never had any issues with long wait times or improper care. So I had to remind myself that not everyone is as lucky as me. And I think if you can make a personal connection with somebody at a medical center, one of the staff there, you're going to have a better experience because they definitely want to help you. And uh, like you said, you haven't had any issues there in DC. Um, if you speak to women, most women who go to the women cl- the women's clinic there think it's the best thing in the world. It's like a spa setting. So why would that be a one star? It's the overall thing. I mean, there's, there's things about... Um, uh, getting supplies that went into this. There, there's all sorts of reasons why it's a one star. And we all know that the person who was in charge was relieved last year. It was yeah. Twice, I believe. Twice, yeah. <laughs> fired and then the union brought him back and then fired again after uh, the new protocols were put in place for removing people from the VA. The other one star medical centers alongside Washington, D.C., Hampton, Virginia, which is a problem because that Hampton Roads area is a massive concentration of veterans. Uh, Navy bases, Army bases, yeah. Air Force bases. A lot of people retire around there, continue to work at them. So that's an issue. Harlingen or Harlingen or Harlingen, I don't know, Texas, Roseburg, Oregon, Big Spring, Texas, Denver, Colorado, Dublin, Georgia, El Paso, Texas. Boy, Texas showing up on this list repeatedly. (laughs) Jackson, Mississippi, Loma Linda, California, Memphis, Tennessee, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee. 
again, Tennessee yeah. showing up all over the place. Phoenix, Arizona, and of course, Walla Walla, Washington, a place Walla that Walla. I thought was just from cartoons when I was a kid because <laughs> Bugs Bunny would talk about it, like Walla Walla, Albuquerque, all those places. Didn't know they were real until I was much older, but <laughs> these places are having issues, and the VA does at least seem to be uh, addressing it or trying to. I mean, they're trying to make changes. They're not just sitting there and letting everything fester at this point, right? Well, I mean, they know they have to make changes. I mean, you're dealing with people's lives, and and again, the the majority of the people that work at the VA want to take care of veterans. That's why they're there. Um, I one of the things my favorite things to do when I'm interviewing somebody is after it's all over, asking them, "So why are you there? Why are you working at the VA?" And every single one that I've talked to says, "I want to make a difference for veterans. I'm not a veteran myself, but I want to take care of veterans." So you have that attitude. It's great, but again, the bureaucracy kicks in. To make these changes, most of the changes have to be done through an act of Congress. So we, that's going to be fun to try to get Congress to do anything. (laughs) So what do you do? You have to do what you can. And I think that's what Shulkin is doing. Yeah, hard to get Congress to do much other than uh, moan at each other and bicker back and yeah. forth. And nee, you're the worst. No, you're the worst. No, you're the worst. That's Congress in a nutshell. Now, don't get me wrong. I wrote an article last year or earlier, earlier this year. Yeah, last month. Um, and I gave Shulkin an F for his first year. In, yeah, you did. There. Um, and half of the stuff that- Professor Copang I know, right? out grades. <laughs> well, he, he started it. He had these 13 points <laughs> he, of improvement. He started it. He started it. it. <laughs> he had these 13 points of improvement, and I did a half-year check on it, and I wrote an article about that. And then you can see some things were going on. And at the year mark, half of the stuff, there just wasn't enough going on. And again, Congress has to deal with most of the stuff. You have choice, things like that. That's a Congress thing. So I put all those things aside, and I just graded what is out there. And it's his first year. And so things- there are some movements in, in things, but not enough. And and as long as we have veterans complaining about healthcare or, or complaining about things happening to them, it's not going to be enough. So until it is, he gets enough. Yeah, and we're speaking with our reporter, Jonathan Copanger, former VA employee, so uh, tends to do quite a few stories on the VA stuff. And we have something that requires some VA expertise. Some expertise? No, that sounds bad. That sounds like somebody... somebody that sounds like something you got to get tested for. Yeah, that's, expertise is like somebody who works for Jenny McCarthy right. or like that's her next book about why you should uh, allow mumps to come back into circulation. Yeah, get your kids vaccinated, please. <laughs> I, I beg of you. But um, whenever we need uh, some of that VA expertise, Jonathan is typically the one who's uh, looking into it for us. One that you talked about, which we've talked about for months now, is the ID card website, which yeah. it broke again after <laughs> they launched it, but that was only temporary. This is it, my surprise look. It did come back, and now that that one appeared to be just a temporary uh, a temporary crash as opposed to the hardcore one a couple months ago. Yeah. Um, it looks like those things are out there. You know, that's one of those um, – it's kind of like – I look at that VAID, VAID card – like a kid running for class president who's like, yeah, and everybody will get a candy bar with right. lunch. What does that really do for you? Nothing, but it looks good. Yeah. Like, oh, look, I got a candy bar, just like that guy said I was going to get. These VA ID cards, yeah, nice. I'll be able to get the uh, veterans discount at Home Depot or Lowe's or mm-hmm. wherever you want to go. But other than that, uh, it's not any particular feasible change to the VA. Or no, anything. because you, if you're in the medical if you're in medical care in the VA, you have a different card for right. that. 
So this is completely different. Um, if you already have your medical ID card, you don't necessarily need this one. This one just, like you said, it's going to get you a discount if you show it sometimes. Yeah, and it's not usable as a point of ID. Of course, your VA medical card isn't as well. Correct. So it's uh, you know, it's one of those things. But uh, we'll be, of course, keeping an eye on the VA as we look at everything happening around there because it absolutely absolutely affects us in the veteran community as well as the active duty military community because hey we are all in the same boat if you're on active duty now hey you're going to be a veteran at one point one (laughs) way or another you're either going to retire you're going to get out maybe you're going to get kicked out we don't know we hope not on that one you know jonathan i wanted to ask you we talked about this very uh briefly earlier the tape test. Do you remember that for the the Navy physical readiness test, the body fat measuring? Yes. Where they would re- the rope and choke, as yes. they call people. <laughs> They're talking about getting rid of that. Now, you served uh, in a different era than Jake and I did. You yes. served a little bit earlier than us. What was the Navy physical readiness test like back when you were serving, which was in like the what? I mean, what what were your years of service? Seventeen hundreds. Yeah, seventeen hundreds. Um, something yeah. like that. Uh, 80, <laughs> 86 to ninety seven. No, eighty seven to ninety six. Something like that. Okay, so you got out a couple years before I came in. So wouldn't it be that much difference between ninety six and ninety eight. Did you see many changes to the physical readiness test while you were in? It was just a joke. It was a complete and total joke. I'm sorry, but. If you have 15, I think it was 15 minutes and change to walk a mile and a half. Was it even a mile and a half? Was it just a mile? I forget mile how much it was. Yeah. If you can't do that by walking, there's there's a huge problem and you should not be in the military. That's just my personal opinion. Um, I just found it, the whole thing, kind of a joke. Here we are. We're in the military. We're supposed to be the, the best military in the world. We're supposed to take care of things. But you can't go a mile and a half and without stopping. Yeah, well, there was, uh, you know, the the old issue that I used to hear from people who uh, who who were very unable to do that and did not want to do that and would get waivers so that they didn't have to do that. Part of their argument would be, when the hell am I going to have to run a mile and a half from in the navy? It's yeah, but did you all have to do job. the toe touch? Oh, yeah. Do you remember that one? Oh you yeah, had to sit on on your your bum and touch your toes. Did you have to do that in the army? No, the army the army's was very simple and very stupid. We had a uh, two minutes of push ups, two minutes of sit ups, and then a two mile run, and that's it. That is a complete mark of your physical fitness. Did you have a certain amount of push ups and sit ups you had to do? Yes, like let's see uh, if I remember right, a uh, an eighteen year old male has to do forty two push ups, fifty six sit ups, and run the two mile in fifteen fifty four. Really, which is not that difficult, like no. at all. No, I mean, I mean, you look at someone like the Marine Corps who has been changing their PT test constantly, trying to make it more mirror combat scenarios. Like the Army toyed with that too. At one point, they were going to have a different PRT test, a PRT test. That's like an ATM machine, whatever. <laughs> uh, but like things like carrying ammo cans and stuff like that, things you would actually do in a combat scenario. Yeah, that's kind of logical. Then. Yeah, but they just they keep they can't decide on what it should be, so they keep this same outdated system that they have instead of doing something to update it. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting thing, the, the physical readiness test, but DOD is looking at changing that. The rope and choke, the measuring your waist and your neck and mm-hmm. then subtracting, and for females, it involved the hips as well. I'm not exactly sure what the measurement uh, thing was there, but for males, it was your waist and your neck, and then you'd subtract the neck from the waist. This is like alchemy. This is like old school, <laughs> like like dark age. What does that have to do with anything? Bring forth the leeches. Some people, if you had a thick neck, guess what? You were good to go. If you weighed 400 pounds and your neck was 40 inches and your waist was 52, you were good to go. It just, it, it was... 
it was about body composition and that's what they said but body composition doesn't mean anything there yeah. are people who have uh, th that measurement is going to be good or bad and they're perfectly physically fit we had a guy who was uh, a weightlifter like competitive weightlifter mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. national scale uh, and because he had a, a big weight he was just yeah. thick all the way around except for his neck that number was not good for him basically <laughs> like his waist was much yeah. bigger than his neck um, and you could have it the other way too i mean some of them would get like almost negative numbers because their necks were so big and their waists were so small it was very strange that uh, your weight, they would say basically for your height, you have to be within this these weight parameters. Mm -hmm. What does that have to do with physical fitness? And they would say, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not physically fit. So the way we're going to find that is by measuring your neck and your waist and subtracting one from the other. And there you are. You're good to go, which yeah. is it's asinine it's, is the best it's, way to put it's, it. There's, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, had a, we had a guy when I was at AFN in Korea, we had a, a soldier who was, again, a competitive bodybuilder. He's one of those guys that like measured out his meals and ate six times a day and stuff like that, like worked out twice a day, really just huge, big yeah. buff dude. And he was way over his weight limit, but every time they would tape him, he had this tiny little waist and this big, thick neck. And it's like, he would just sit there like when we taped him and he just had this, this, look on his face like what are these people doing yeah it was it's very bizarre where it would be i just i don't understand it here's another one that i don't understand um the pentagon mm -hmm. going through when you have to get an award changed or added i don't understand why this is always so difficult but military times has an interesting story by sean snow that they put up uh, last night this is about a marine gunny john canley was awarded the Navy Cross serving as a company commander at the outset of the Tet Offensive. 50th anniversary of the Tet Offensive was last week. He was given the Navy Cross, and it was agreed by just about everybody that they were going to uh, upgrade that to make it the Medal of Honor. Because mm -hmm. when he went back and looked at what he did, he said, well, geez, uh, this guy maybe should have gotten a little bit more than the Navy Cross. Yeah. And when they think his honors certainly, uh, or his actions certainly got to the level of Medal of Honor. 13 years it took for them, despite the fact that most people seem to agree that mm -hmm. this should have been a Medal of Honor. 13 years, red tape, constant delays. Finally, in 2005, uh, they began this process. 2018, it's going to be upgraded to the Medal of Honor. Here's the interesting thing about the Medal of Honor as I look back at it. They've given out fewer of them for mm -hmm. each conflict, uh, respectively. I mean, there were more given out in in World War One than there were in World War Two. More mm -hmm. in World War Two than in Korea. More in Korea than in Vietnam. More in Vietnam than in uh, the current uh, situations uh, that we've had in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then, if you go back prior to World War One. As Jake pointed out, back when Jonathan was serving in the Navy, <laughs> uh, like this issue that they had with the uh, Navy Cemetery out in California, there were five Medal of Honor recipients or something there. Yeah. But the Medal of Honor used to be like a NAM almost. It was like the medal that yeah. everybody was given. If you did something good, you got a Medal of Honor. It's gotten to the point now, though, where it's almost like they don't want to give it to anybody. Well, is it that they that or is it that they made it more special? Yeah, I think I think it's that they want it to be more unique because this is the military's highest honor. Yeah. yeah. So they they can't give it out like candy like they used to in the Civil War and World War One and things like that. They want people to realize that if you got a Medal of Honor, you did something extraordinary. Yeah. You went above and beyond. Right. I, I just think uh, that there are some cases where it seems uh, pretty clear, and there are those where it goes through pretty quickly. You can look at uh, Flo Groberg for one. I mean, the, some of these go through very, very quickly. Some of them, though, you look at them and you go, well, what's the issue here? And it comes back to this awards thing, and the Navy 
and Marine Corps, but particularly the Navy, uh, always had this reputation as like not giving out awards. Yeah, the Navy just is not. <laughs> in the Air Force, in. like by the time you get out of boot camp in the Air Force, you're looking <laughs> like Chesty Puller. You got <laughs> nine medals. You got all sorts of special things on your cover. You're looking ridiculous out there. Whereas in the Navy, I mean, my God, I think I got to my second command before I got any award of any type. Not that I wasn't doing great work up there in Iceland, but when I left at that point, my command was like, well, we don't really give uh, end of tour awards to the uh, E4 and below. So I didn't get one. And then I, I ended up getting an Army Commendation Medal before I got a Navy Achievement Medal. So a higher ranking Army one before I got a lower ranking Navy one. Uh, it's just an interesting situation. And it seems that the military and DOD, speaking of which, our posters that had the medals on them are gone, I just noticed. That was Max. Oh, those were, oh, that's yeah. right. And Mac is going. She's, She's gone. Good job. Yeah. So there you go. Now I understand. I was like, well, <laughs> the, well then how am I going to know how my ribbons are going to, oh yeah, that's right. I don't wear them anymore. Yeah. They're, they're in a shadow box at home where they are forever in the right order. Um, it seems like the military's moved more in that direction, like kind of not, not wanting to give them out because I think if you get to a situation where even the medal of honor is being considered, mm-hmm. That if you do give it to the person, there's not going to be many people, if any, out there going like, boo, 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 yeah. don't give that person right. the Medal of Honor. And I think a Medal of Honor recipient is kind of, a, if they're living particularly posthumously, is a different scenario. But for uh, those who who survive their actions and are awarded the Medal of Honor, I think it's a big public relations boost for the military when you have these people out there showing these selfless things. So it seems counterintuitive to me for the military to make it harder and harder and harder for someone to get it. Do we know what the process is to get it? Like, do, does it go through the service or? Is it the service nominates and has to go to the Pentagon? Branch the Pentagon. of service, I believe, all the way up through the chairman, like whoever is uh, the, the like chief of naval operations or whatever. Who's the guy at the top of our army officer? Army chief of staff. Army chief of staff. I think he goes up to there, and then there's a special committee that goes through and reviews it. But I, I just, it seems like they keep getting more and more uh, reticent to give out these high awards to people when. I think it makes them look good. You know, it's like, what, why are you making it harder for someone to get something that would be a big public relations boom? Like, Oh, look at what this wonderful person did. JQ's Hughes just got the medal of honor. He saved 20 people's lives. Well, he should have saved 21 and he didn't. So maybe we'll just give him the, the army, you know, distinguished armying medal or whatever the heck they call it. I don't know. We have the Navy cross. What's the highest army one before the, uh, I believe it's the distinguished service cross, distinguished service cross. Okay. It's not like the armying medal first class of no. 10 degrees or something. No. Okay. Well, no, that's a lower than the distinguished service. cross. Oh, that's a different one. Yeah. It's up there, but I, it's just one of those confusing things. And again, it, it seems almost like the military and the VA, uh, their public relations ideas are just kind of, what should we do? What would be the best thing for us to do? That okay. Oh, let's, let's do, do the, the opposite. opposite. Let's yeah. do whatever whatever we shouldn't do. If we can make things look good, let's find a way to make them look bad. Do you think that's possible? And then let's argue about the bad stuff so that yeah. it gets more attention. Yeah, let's let's shine a light on that. Let's mm-hmm. go. Yeah, one star facilities. Yeah, look at those. Look at all these. We're blowing them up. That's what we're doing. Ah. There's uh, yeah, it's it's just uh, it's it's mind boggling. I think particularly with the VA, that's the one where I look at it and go, you know, if they just put. Jonathan in charge of their media oh, relations no. over there. <laughs> no. no, thank you. Oh, I don't think you understand. I've started a petition. <laughs> 
on change.org to get Jonathan Kopanger installed as director of media relations for the VA. And we're going to see what happens there. Oh, that would be funny. It would be interesting. And uh, you'd probably see a change for the better in the way that they're the way that they're presenting things anyway. Well, you've been listening to the morning briefing as we now come to an end. Uh, we will hopefully reschedule our eight o'clock guests maybe for later this week uh, and see what we can do there. But I want to implore you to check out ConnectingVets.com to find more of Jonathan's work on the VA, to look at Jake's story on the VFW, asking people to stop leaving remains at the Vietnam Wall. So much more great content that is available on the website and on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Let's give people a little sneak peek. Jonathan, what are you thinking about working on today? Well, what I want to say is uh, check our culture section because we're doing, uh, all month long, we're doing features for Black History Month. We've got some really cool stuff. Um, I wrote an article yesterday. There's this woman. She was uh, in the Marines, first Marine um, uh, uh, combat pilot ridiculously incredible ridiculously incredible that's that's a different level of incredible yeah it's more than just regular incredible it's ridiculously incredible well thank you for listening to this ridiculously okay show (laughs) (laughs) eric dame jonathan copanger and jake hughes here in studio we want to thank justin brown of hill vets for coming in talking to us about the need for congressional staffers on capitol hill we want to invite you to tune in tomorrow for another great show we're going to have the good people from grunt fit the new fitness app from our partner grunt style have a great day tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone news in order to secure convictions in a court of law it is essential that we conclusively sports clock at four Donchich. the step back three you bet. music you set my world on fire yes, and even podcasts whatever you love hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.